Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, June 2nd. A couple of weeks ago, I had the absolute pleasure of going to Cairo to attend the first ever Fashion Week in Egypt. It was a really special moment to be there, and I was so inspired to meet so many BOF readers and thrilled to see firsthand the role that BOF is playing in helping to shape the fashion dialogue in the Middle East. Thanks to all of you for coming and for sharing your stories and experiences with me. BOF 500 member Susan Sabat also invited me to give a talk to fashion professionals from across the country who are gathering together for the first time as a community. I was interviewed by Malak Fuad, whose podcast, What I Did Next, features people from the Middle East and explores life's pivot points. Malak's questions were so good, as were the many questions from the BOF community afterwards, that I thought it would be nice to share the full conversation here this week. I hope you will enjoy it. The only difference is that this week, I am answering the questions, not asking them. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the first session of Egypt Fashion Week, the first uh, talk. Today, we're honored to have Imran Ahmed with us, who's the CEO of the Business of Fashion. Clearly, your reputation precedes you. So it's a delight to have you. Thank you for being here. Such a pleasure. Thank you. It's your first time in Cairo, I think. It's my second time in Cairo. The first time was in 1999. I took a trip here with my parents and did all of the touristic sites. So I haven't been here for 24 years. And I just want to thank Susan Sabat for inviting me and for making this possible. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. So we're going to jump right in because we don't have much time. So for those of you that don't know, the business of fashion has become the Bible of the industry. And I think for us sitting in Egypt, what resonates the most is the fact that it's not Western-centric. And I think that's a really important thing for us to keep in mind with this audience. You're a big proponent of taking fashion everywhere, giving voice to 
different parts of the world, which I think is really important. So we welcome that. And thank you for coming, because it's uh, amazing to have you here. And your attention on Egypt is very valued. So let's kick off, uh, Imran, by maybe just looking a tiny bit at some of the influences that you had as a young man. I know you had a very stellar career before going into fashion. Maybe give us just a glimpse of that, and then we can go into more about the business of fashion itself. Sure. So I've met already so many of you over the past 12 or 15 hours who've come up to me and talked about your own journeys into the fashion industry. Many of you don't work in fashion, but you're excited or interested in the fashion industry. And that was very much my story. I grew up in Canada, in Calgary, which is about one hour from the Rocky Mountains. My parents had immigrated to Canada from East Africa, from Nairobi. My mother's from Tanzania, my father's from Kenya. But my origins are Indian. My great-grandparents migrated from India to East Africa before my parents migrated from East Africa to Canada before I migrated from Canada to the UK. And so the reason I see the world the way I do is very much a reflection of my own personal history and experience. And I think it's super important that as we think about business, as we think about fashion, as we think about the way we try to understand everything that's happening in the world, that we do so with a global lens. My childhood was amazing. My parents nurtured both my nerdy academic side and my creative expressive side. And both of those things are elements that, you know, I've been trying to reconcile most of my career and most of my life. When it came to studying, I went and studied business. It was the responsible thing to do. I was very interested in business growing up, in entrepreneurship in particular, in building things, in leading people, in creating things. I ended up working in management consulting at a company called McKinsey. And McKinsey was amazing in some respects because it exposed me to lots of different types of business problems and lots of different parts of the world. And I worked with incredible people, but it all felt a bit empty to me. And I felt like every day when I was walking into the office, I was leaving a lot of myself at home. And after a while, that really started weighing on me. And I knew that I'd worked so hard to get to where I was. My parents had worked so hard to help me get to where I was. I was raised by a community of people who encouraged me to find my path. And I just knew my path wasn't at McKinsey. So I came from completely outside the fashion industry. The interesting thing to me is that you made that recognition at a very young age. You were 29 when you realized this is not my world. This is not my life. I'm not happy. So you went on a meditation course, a 10-day silent meditation course, and mm -hmm. came out of that with a sense of clarity, I guess, and a sense of new beginnings. Yeah, I mean, we talk about defining moments sometimes. I know on your podcast you yeah. talk about pivot points. Going on this Vipassana meditation retreat, which for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's 10 days of complete silence. No reading, no writing, no music, no eye contact, no engagement. No with, eye contact. No eye oh, contact. Oh, wow. No engagement with any external stimuli. Yeah. The only thing you engage with is yourself. And the whole story of how I ended up going on that meditation is quite a long one, which we don't have time for. But what I'll say is it rewired the way I felt about myself. Mm -hmm. It rewired the way I reacted to the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of life. Yep. And what I really took away is that, you know, life is fundamentally about struggle. We all struggle. And I was struggling a lot. You know, I was in a way very privileged to have the struggle I was having. I, you know, I'd gone to Harvard Business School and worked at this famous company and I was making a lot of money and living a great life in a city that I loved, but I was still finding that I was struggling through that. I was not happy, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, I was not fulfilled. And so the lesson for me was that it is in our struggles that we find ourselves and that we find our purpose. 
And I just knew my purpose yeah. was not linked to running around the world advising companies about business problems in industries that I didn't care about. Yeah. But what I knew was that there was some magic in the intersection between the creative side of me and the analytical side of me. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I just left that meditation retreat with a sense of clarity that my value, my sense of purpose was going to be linked somehow to bringing creativity and business together. I think it's interesting that you took that leap of faith afterwards and you said, okay, I'm going to leave McKinsey. I'm going to follow my own passion. So clearly fashion was always something you were interested in as a child. You used to watch a TV show in Canada that, that left a big imprint on you. Yes. But, you know, we all have these childhood dreams that we keep in our back pocket, but very few people act on them. Yeah. You actually did. How did that come about? How did you decide, okay, I'm really going to try this. So this? I think we're now 2007. Yeah. Um, and you decided to begin a blog yeah. writing about fashion, but you didn't have any contacts in the industry. You just started out just deciding to write about it. You had maybe one or two contacts and you, you began that way, right? So I had spent the previous eight months trying to set up an incubator for young fashion designers. Sadly, that incubator lasted about eight months. Mm -hmm. And I had to shut it down. Yep. But I met Diane Pernay, who's sitting here in the front row, and a couple of other bloggers. And I didn't even know what a blog was. I thought a blog was like a diary. But uh, Diane and a couple of others who I met early on during that journey of setting up that incubator showed me that you could kind of share what you were experiencing. And like, this is before Facebook, before Instagram, before Twitter, before any of that existed. In fact, blogs were the first form of social media. Yeah. It was the first place where you could mm -hmm. say, I've seen something and it inspired me, or I've experienced something and I learned from it and I want to share that with you. And so really my blog that I started writing was a personal thing. It was a form of personal expression. And initially, it was behind a password. Mm -hmm. It was only for my friends and family yeah. to see my journey from McKinsey to the fashion world. And when the incubator failed, I took the password off that blog. I designed a little banner in PowerPoint because that's what I knew. Well, there was at the time. And I called it the business of fashion. And uh, that was January 2007. Mm-hmm. And then slowly, slowly, you began to make your way through the industry and you got more and more recognition and you developed relationships. But, I mean, you've often been called an overnight sensation, which is absolutely not the case. No. But tell me a little bit about the evolution from those early days to now. I mean, how did that come about? Were you very conscious of the stages you wanted to meet, the layers to the business that you were creating, or did it, was it more haphazard? It was not planned or a premeditated or a big vision that I had that mm -hmm. I'd be sitting here in Egypt talking to a room full of people about the fashion industry. I had no idea, none at all. It was also not haphazard mm -hmm. because I have always been an obsessive person. Well, and, and you've so, got the management consultant in yeah, you. Yeah, so, and so you've like got I was. When I was younger, I, I was obsessed with the Billboard music charts. And I used to go to HMV and like I used to open Billboard magazine yep. and I used to obsess over like where was Janet Jackson and where was Michael Jackson and where was the Pet Shop Boys. And like I've always been really obsessive about information. Mm -hmm. I had a stamp collection when I was really young. I was obsessive about organizing that stamp collection in a way that made sense to me. And I'd organize it by country and then by color. And like in a way, I brought that same obsessiveness to the way that I was creating this thing. So it wasn't haphazard. It was done with a lot of care, attention, and thoughtfulness. Mm -hmm. And I think really what happened was is that I'm a very curious person, and I'm always interested in what's happening in the world. And I was very curious to see how things that were just starting to happen in the world might impact this industry that I was getting to know. So I think I was maybe one of the first people who asked the question, how might this little thing called Facebook impact the fashion industry? And then what is the impact of all of these clothes that were producing 
and selling and disposing of? Like, what might the impact of that be on the planet mm. and on our environment? The sustainability element. Why is it that the fashion industry is so narrow in its communication of what beauty looks like? Why does the fashion industry never talk about India or China? Like, why is it that we ignore vast, vast countries that are filled with lots of creative people? I mean, the industry, as I was observing it back in 2006 and 2007, was so, it was so myopic. There was not a lot of interest in mm -hmm. like the fact that actually fashion is an industry that exists everywhere. And Imran, do you think that that's really changed? I think it's really starting to change. I think there's still a lot more mm -hmm. that we need to do as an industry. But yeah, it's, it's, starting, it's starting to change. Yeah, Because as, as people who live or who, who are based in a non-Western country, when you look at any website, it's still very Western-centric. The imagery, the style of the fashion, there's still a lot of influence coming from the US and Europe. And it's a slow change if well, you're look saying at that the there leadership. is a change. Look at the leadership, the business leadership and the creative leadership. And if you look at the business leadership and the creative leadership, the people who make the decisions, yeah. they don't look like me. That's right. They don't look like you. That's right. And so ultimately, in order to get the change that we need, we need to see the designers, the executives, the leaders, the people who make the industry happen. Mm -hmm. We need to see a shift in that. And that's why we created the BOF yeah. 500. The motivation to create the BOF 500 was to recognize people and say, well, actually, the leaders in this industry are not just the people sitting in the headquarters in New York and Paris and yeah. Milan and London. The leaders in this industry are in markets all over the world. They're creative people and business people. They're people behind the scenes. They're Omoyemi Akarelli in Lagos, who's trying to create a fashion industry in her home country. There's Diane Pernay, who for a long time has been recognizing the young fashion designers all over the world and trying to give them a platform. There are people like Burak, who like pushed forward the idea of sustainability when he was at Parsons. We were looking to say leadership in the fashion industry does not only look like a bunch of straight white men sitting in the boardrooms in Paris, Milan, and London. And when we brought that group of people together, something shifted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People felt seen for the first time. They had not been recognized for all of the work, for all of the contributions, for all of the impact that they had had on the fashion industry. Yeah. And so in the content we create, in the events that we produce, in the community that we've been building at BOF since those very first posts that I started writing back in 2007, the idea was to completely shift the way the fashion industry sees itself and to shift the way the rest of the world sees fashion. And that's why I am so delighted and so proud to play a small part in shifting the industry mm. to think differently mm. about itself. I want to shift gears slightly. Um, COVID impacted so many businesses across the planet. It yeah. impacted people's perceptions of how they want to live their lives. It impacted the work-life balance. It impacted uh, physically where you work. Are you working from home? Are you working in an office, et cetera? How did COVID impact your business particularly, your actual brand? And what kind of a shift have you seen in the industry as a whole as well? So the impact on our business was pretty immediate. First of all, we were supposed to move into a brand new office in April 2020. Oh, wow. So I came back from Paris Fashion Week that first week of March 2020 with the plan to sign a lease on this big, huge new office in London, in Soho. Thank goodness I didn't sign that yeah. lease. Because by the time I came back, it was pretty clear that we were about to enter a period of great uncertainty. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Not signing that lease probably saved mm. my business, mm. actually, because yeah. not having to pay... All, All that of rent. that rent. Of course. It was my CFO, Fraser Park, who I will credit forever in the history of BOF, who said to me, maybe we don't need an office. <laughs> and so we didn't sign that lease. We ended up going home and doing a test work from home just to see how the whole team could operate. We'd been using virtual tools like Zoom and yeah. Slack for years already because our team is dispersed all over the, all over the world. Yeah. And we had to use those tools to make it work. 
when we went home that day to do the test work from home, we never went back to the mm -hmm. office. When the lockdowns began, I think March 23rd in the UK, almost immediately all of our business lines experienced a sudden drop. Our careers business, people stopped hiring, all the hiring was frozen. Our events business, and we had planned events in Brazil and yeah. China and New York that year. Those were all on hold. Our advertising business plummeted and our subscription business pretty much went down to zero. Why would the subscription business go down? Well, what happened was I think the first two weeks of lockdown, everyone was still trying to figure out like what the hell is happening. Right. They were trying to get like sanitizer and yeah. masks. And then they had priorities. I think, <laughs> I think once people were all settled in their work from home yeah. situation and then they realized like, oh, I need a bit more oh, than this. crap. Yeah. Like this is going to go on for yeah. a while. Then our subscription business just went like, why not? Of course. And actually the rise in our subscription business almost made up for all of the declines in all of our other businesses. Yeah, yeah. And that was thanks to our members. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, BOF would not be here if our members didn't come and support us during that period. It was incredible. I remember looking at the numbers and seeing like 180%, 200% growth over the same month in the previous year. And I sat down with my team, virtually, of course, and I said, our role, our responsibility is to act as a guide. And I used the example of a Sherpa. Sherpas are these incredible individuals that, you know, guide people through the mountainous terrain yep. in the, like, Himalayas, right? You never know what you're going to encounter. You don't know what problems lie ahead. And I said, we have no idea what's going to happen, but our job for the next whatever time period this is going to last, is to act as a guide for the industry as we navigate a once-in-a-century global health crisis. Yeah. We have members in 125 countries mm -hmm. around the world, including Egypt, I'm proud to say. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just thankful to everyone for supporting us through that period. And hopefully, we were able to live up to that mission to really guide the industry through the crisis. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back with more on the BOF Podcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. 
They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff. With real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You were just in Kuwait before coming here. Yeah. And so you've got this new arm to the business, which um, sort of does a deep dive in terms of the analytics of different regions, different areas of the business. And you just come out with a report on the Middle East and specifically yes. the retail industry, right? Yeah. Walk us through that because there are some really interesting nuggets that we can pull out of there, primarily, which I had noticed and we talked about yesterday, this idea of localization. Yeah which is, you know, most people today are much more interested in, especially in the Middle East, it's an anecdotal thing that I had noticed, you know, there's a pride in wearing your national dress, there's a pride in wearing local designers and featuring jewelry from your region or highlighting the treasures, the heritage of your region. And you notice that in your report. How can that translate into dollars? How do the big brands in the West cater now to a market that is more inward-looking? So when we asked senior executives around the world around which market they were most optimistic about, which one they were looking at most closely, it was the Middle East. Mm -hmm. We thought, well, we should double-click on that. Of course. And when we did our own research through BOF Insights, what we learned is that some of the biggest challenges that luxury brands, international brands have when thinking about this market and, you know, the market is obviously vast. You know, Egypt is not like Kuwait, is not like Saudi, is not like Dubai. I mean, all of these... And you have the, different spending power in... in there's different in, spending yeah. power, there's different local traditions. I mean, but one of the commonalities that we found was actually that the customers in these regions, rather, they feel like a little bit the way these brands treat them is a bit tokenistic. And so some of the examples around Ramadan, for example, when the brands are you know, issuing... The Ramadan kaftan look. They're doing kaftans, <laughs> or they're, they're, they're doing everything in green. Yeah. You know, like yeah. they're just, it's the same phenomenon we see in China, a China around Chinese yeah. New Year. They, you know, they do everything in red with dragons on it, you know, yeah. like, and the Cliché, very cliche. Super cliche and really not understanding yeah. that the customer everywhere in the world has access to the same information. They have the same awareness about all the brands. They want to be treated with a level of respect and understanding. And intelligence. And intelligence. Yeah. And a reflection, of course, of the local culture and customs. And you can't do that sitting in Paris or That's New York right. or, or London without really empowering teams in local markets to inform you. One of the biggest lessons we learned, you know, as the Chinese market was exploding... Uh, if you talk to the smartest executives, I mean, after five years of trying to dictate everything from the headquarters, they realized they get the best results when they hire really good people in the local market and empower those local markets to make decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you try to take this kind of command and control approach from the center, it doesn't work. Yeah. And so when it comes to building successful businesses here in the Middle East, These brands need to think a lot more about, you need to spend a lot more time in the market, they need to talk to the customers, and they need to empower local teams so they can really create activations, products, experiences that really resonate with customers, and they must be done on the same level, with the same level of care and understanding that they do all of their events in other parts of the world. And then there's also an opportunity for the acquisition of local labels, right? to incorporate those into the wider or the larger fashion conglomerates and have that local arm available? Well, I think actually probably not. Mm -hmm. Those big luxury conglomerates are too big 
and too focused on these really big businesses to ever really give proper care and attention to, the to a small local business in a market where they don't spend time. Right. So I don't think that that's will happen. That's probably not an, an option. But that's the competitive advantage for all of you. You know, for you who are small business owners, entrepreneurs, designers who understand this market, who understand, you know, the Egyptian, and I saw a little bit last night, you know, the energy, the kind of expressiveness of the culture, you understand that better than anybody else. So as you're trying to build your own businesses here in this market, you need to do so with the reflection of your understand. That's something that none of those people will ever understand as well as you do. That's your superpower. Your superpower is what you understand about this market. And so I think actually the local brands should thrive on their, their local knowledge mm-hmm. and understanding of the market. And hopefully with events like Egypt Fashion Week and the community building and industry building that's happening here, there's also an ecosystem and community of people where you can all support each other. What I don't like to see in the fashion industry is backstabbing, competitiveness, sharkiness. That doesn't work. This is a community. And I think the more that we can create mutual understanding, more we can help each other and learn from each other, especially in local markets that have been overlooked, you'll never succeed if you're competing with each other and not working together. You'll only succeed as a community of people who work together, and I really believe in that. I want to switch gears um, as we come towards the end, and I want to ask you a little bit about the... AI world and the metaverse, and how is that going to impact fashion? Because it's what's on everyone's lips, regardless of which industry you're in. Everyone's talking metaverse. You have an avatar. I have an avatar. We're all, you know, in this in this digital new reality. What does it mean for the global market? What does it mean for the Middle East? How can we leverage that maybe to leapfrog past what's currently happening in other markets? Can it help us? Or are we not there yet? Okay. So metaverse and AI, I want to deal with them separately. Okay. they're very different things. But there's lessons we can learn from both of them. The idea of the metaverse first entered my brain in February 2021. And it came across this company called Artifact, run by this guy named Benoit Pagotto. And in a matter of like six minutes, he sold $3 million of virtual sneakers. I read that and I was like, I just need to meet this guy. Like, who is this guy? I was very lucky to meet him. I actually did a television episode with him that later that summer, which if you want my full take on the metaverse, you can check that out. It's on YouTube. <laughs> and at the time, there was this frenzy happening around the metaverse. So we saw mentions and discussion about the metaverse. If you look at like Google search trends. And if you look at the, the price of some of these NFTs That's and right. these digital assets, insane. they just went like this. Yeah. And then of course, late last year, there was a down. crash. Yeah. I think what we're seeing right now is a reality check in the metaverse. What I think is really exciting about the metaverse is that it's a whole new way of using fashion to express who we are. There's whole new types of creativity required a lot of the most interesting opportunities in the metaverse are actually going to be in gaming. Gaming is now the number one form of entertainment in the whole world. And that includes not just young people. It includes people at every major age cohort. If you look at where they spend their most time, it's playing games. Yeah. And so a lot of the opportunities that we see for the metaverse is actually in interacting with customers in gaming environments, yeah. like Roblox, mm-hmm. like Fortnite, like sure. all of these spaces where like, there's like literally hundreds of millions of people spending time. So brands are now understanding that if they want to connect with this generation mm-hmm. or this, these cohorts of people in these virtual but, spaces. But that's like product placement, right? It's not just product placement. It's basically, I think it's a form of marketing on artificial intelligence. Yeah. This is a game changer. Yeah. This is a earthquake for the world. And, you know, a lot of the technology thinkers that I really respect, when I listen to their insights and when, when the way they talk about what artificial intelligence is going to do for the world, it's kind of mind-blowing. We had an Egyptian actually speak at our BOF Voices conference. This is Mo Gaudet. Mo Gaudet. He spoke at BOF Voices in so, December. So, Mo, you were a guest on Mo's show. 
Yes. And Mo was a guest on my show. My show is called What I Did Next. Yeah. And him and I ended up talking about artificial intelligence for about an hour and a half because it is such a game changer I mean, on so many uh, he levels. Says, he says AI will eventually be a billion times smarter than a human being. But his take is interesting. It's like you've got to nurture it like a child. Exactly. So, so that it becomes your buddy. That's his whole point yeah. of view. It's like, you know, everyone's talking. There's a lot of fear mongering around AI. And some, there is some fearful stuff to think about. There and there's some very important ethical issues that we need to be yeah. addressing head on if we're going to really make the best of this tool. You know, AI has the potential to impact a lot of the parts of the industry that people thought were a bit untouchable yeah. by technology, yeah. the creative parts of our industry. I think what won't change is we will always need creative people to drive the industry. It's just the way that we're going, those creative people are going to engage mm. with the industry, the way they're going to engage with technology, it's going to change. It's changing. So if you're a creative person, you need to understand AI. You need to go play with Midjourney and Dali and ChatGPT. You need to go practice creating prompts to see what this can create. It's magical. I was playing around with it back in December when uh, ChatGPT, you know, first launched, and I was like blown away. You can like say, I want to create an image that looks like a Richard Avedon image taken with this kind of camera in this kind of light in this city. And if your prompt is really specific, you get, and it's not perfect. Like mm. what you get back is sometimes like warped and like mm. the faces are wrong and there's things that are wrong. But yeah. we're at the first hour of AI. What this is going to be like yeah. in a year? Yeah. I think it's going to be really interesting. And yeah. so I'm kind of scared though, I have to admit. Yeah, I mean it I'm is a, a bit it is a bit daunting, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. But you know, it's like back in 2007 when I got really excited about Facebook. About your blog, yeah. You know, and I was like, "Oh, you know, what is this thing called Facebook?" And the whole industry was like, "Oh, no, luxury companies will never be on Facebook because mm. luxury customers are not on Facebook." Of course, Luxury customers were on Facebook. They are on Facebook. We also learned that the way, as a global society, we engaged with social media, we made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And we've learned that there's a lot of privacy issues. There's a lot of mental health issues. There's a lot of ethical issues. Mm. There's a lot of miscommunication issues that no one had really considered when social media was first rising. That's right. And so as we think about this next wave of technology that's going to shape the way we all live and work, we need to be a lot more attentive to thinking about what's the dark side. What are the things that we need to be aware of so that as this technology develops, we can ensure that it's contributing to the world in a positive way and it's not taking us down a dark path yeah. that you know, we don't even know what to expect. Yeah. We're going to open the discussion to a Q&A from the audience very soon. I just want to end our talk um, with a look at something I do on my podcast regularly, which is I ask my guests what is in their cultural inbox. What are they watching, reading, listening to at the moment that's left an impact. So what is on your, in your inbox these days? So this morning, I was actually listening. Do you guys know who Rick Rubin is? Okay. You need to go look up Rick Rubin because Rick Rubin is this legendary music producer. And he's not like one of those music producers who only understands one genre of music and is known for one type of music. Like Rick Rubin works with everybody, you know, and he was a creator of this thing called Def Jam Records. Mm -hmm. He has this new book called The Creative Act. And his ability to work across so many different genres of music, he says that the, the book and this podcast with Krista Tippett on being, it really explores this idea of like where creativity really comes from. And although like I'm not working in the music industry, I found this so inspiring because he pretty much says like creativity is not this thing that comes from inside, it comes from the world as you interpret it or as you interact with it. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it really resonated with me because like as a creative person, as someone who's like been building this creative company for the last 15 mm -hmm. years, like you know, and going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, my, like my creativity comes from the world as I experience it, the world as I see it. Yeah. You know, I would never have been able to create BOF if I hadn't been from this family that migrated from all of these different places that, you know, my identity is so intersectional 
it's so multifaceted, it's so multi-layered. That's why I'm able to create something like BOF. Absolutely. Like something clicked in my brain yeah. when I was listening to that podcast this morning. So I highly recommend Rick yeah. Rubin. I mean, I think we all have these pivots in our lives, right? Which it's like stepping stones and you connect the dots and you build from where you were and it's like layers that you build on. And you have, you have quite a few of those. So yeah. that was great, Imran, thank you. Of course. Thank you very much. So we're going to open up to Q&A now. If anyone has some questions, I think there are some mics going around. Hi, I'm Ron. Hi. It, was, uh, it was really inspiring and amazing what you guys talked about. I have a brand here in Egypt called Satcher, and we work with sustainability and, and a lot of things like that. I just wanted to ask you about um, how the West usually sees uh, our part of the world, like you talked, uh, from the colonialist standpoint that they see us as manufacturing countries rather than people that have ideas and creativity and all of that. And when it comes to actually doing business and going to trade shows, and, and we, we, got, we got exposed in the US and Europe quite a bit, and people just see us like India, like Vietnam, like Bangladesh till today. They look at us as people who have cheap labor, who have, what do, you, what do you have to offer me? And they look at us in a certain way. So it's very difficult to penetrate these markets. So do you have any ideas on how we can actually break that cycle when it comes to this? And um, also there's an issue, uh, lots of barriers when it comes to export and to work in Europe, uh, even from the standpoint of getting visas and travel. There's a lot of barriers that we have to face that others in the West have no clue that we are going through. So how can we bring that to the attention of people and, and, and make it a bit easier, bring both points of view together? Thank you so much. Thank you for that question. It's a really important question. I just think we need to think about as people who come from different places where you know, the power structures maybe don't exist, we need to focus on creating things for our own markets. We need to stop focusing on trying to get validation from the West. You know, when we talk about creating systemic change in the world, it, that requires the willingness and interest for those people in the positions of power to want to change, and I don't necessarily see that willingness or desire as yet. And so if you think about the global south, if you think about India, if you think about the Middle East, if you think about the continent of Africa and it's more than 50 countries, if you think of Southeast Asia, if you think of Vietnam and Indonesia, if you add all of those people up, it's huge. So my view is let's stop focusing on trying to always focus on breaking into the West and let's see what we can do in these kind of long neglected, long overlooked markets to work with each other. So make connections between yeah, other we countries. Yeah, we have shared experiences. You mentioned colonialism. I mean, if you look at most of the regions I've just mentioned, they're still unraveling the impact of years and years of colonialism. And sadly, a lot of the structures upon which the fashion industry is built is a legacy of that, right? And so. I don't have solutions to take down these systemic barriers. What I do is I say, let's find other opportunities. And there's opportunities everywhere. So I don't know if that's the answer you were hoping for, but that's what I think is the right thing to do. Hi. Hi. Uh, my question is going to be like a bit of a basic question. I'm into fashion so much since like, I discovered this since I was 11. Yeah. Okay, and right now I'm 20, or about to be 20. So my question here is, like, I feel like I can't find a foundation for myself. I started to be like, I'm into fashion designing, and then I'm into fashion modeling. And then right now, I'm some sort of a certified fashion stylist. But for me to know what exactly I want and how to work with it is hard. I feel like I'm stuck like after the course and stuff like that, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's the next step that I should take. Mm. Yeah, I think we can all relate to feeling that way sometimes. So if you're only 20, <laughs> I can tell you you're going to feel stuck. <laughs> don't say that to him. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm saying it as a, hopefully in an encouraging way, which is feeling stuck is normal. If you're looking for your place in the fashion industry, the best way to find your place is to try to understand 
every single aspect. There was this advice that was given to me. I did an informational call with someone at Ralph Lauren very early in my search for the fashion industry. She said to me, you know, well, what part of the industry do you want to work in? And I said, well, you know, I'm not sure. And she's like, well, before you get on a call like this, <laughs> you should really understand all of the different parts of the fashion industry. Because if you don't understand all the parts of the fashion industry, you're not going to know where you can fit in. And then the final thing that I'd say is in order to figure out which part of the fashion industry you could fit into, you need to first understand yourself. You need to understand your talents, what makes you happy, what excites you, what gets your fire lit inside of you. So maybe it's not modeling, maybe it's not designing, but I'm glad that you're trying lots of different things. And hopefully, one day you're going to try something and something clicks. And then you won't be stuck. Thank you so much. All right. Imran, I'm not from your industry. Actually, I'm probably a bit more akin to your previous world, more okay. on the business side of things. But I'm here with my family, my wife and my daughter, to support our very dear friend, Malak, to introduce my daughter to strong, powerful women out there doing many different things. Her coach for Taekwondo out there is one of the models. Okay, So it's a oh, very no interesting and changing world that we live in. Having said all that, thank you for your talk. It was amazing. My question for you is about bringing up young women today and how do we allow them to be exposed to the fantastic things that you were talking about in the fashion world, but also make sure we can protect them from some of the dark sides of the industry, as there are in probably most businesses. And just that you have so much exposure to this space, it'd be great to hear a little bit about your thoughts about that area. Thank you for that question. It's a really important question, and I can honestly say I've never been asked that question before, so you get the prize for asking me a question no one's asked me before. I was in a London taxi one day, and you know the London taxi drivers, they sometimes chat with you. Always chat with you. Yeah. You know, this one was particularly chatty, and he kind of saw the way I was dressed and started asking me some questions, and he said, well, what, what do you do? And I said, oh, I work in the fashion industry. And, you know, usually that's something I say with a bit of pride. And he said, oh. And he said, yeah, my son had some exposure to the fashion industry. He wanted to be a model. And I really hate that industry because my son has started feeling all of these things about himself that we never recognized in him as a young person because he didn't feel like his body was the right shape. He started eating differently. He started obsessing about things the way he looked, you know. And so it really kind of impacted me when he said that. And I said, you're absolutely right. This is an industry that has for a long time made people feel bad about themselves. That doesn't make sense, really, does it? And so I've thought about this, but you know, no one's ever asked me you know, on a stage like this. And so what I said to him is the same thing I said to you, is that the industry has a lot of work to do. But I'm really lucky because I get to meet so many of the people who sit behind the external image of the industry. And I know that the industry isn't only about that. For the right path, with the right education, with the right mentors, with a little bit of luck, you know, people can find their way in their image in this industry and have an impact. And by the way, I don't look like someone who should work in the fashion industry. You know, like I'm five foot three, I'm brown, I'm very small, no clothes fit me when I go to a store. I mean, <laughs> it's a nightmare. And so I, I loved this industry, but I literally had someone tell me at the very beginning of my search, we don't need people like you in fashion. What did you answer? I didn't answer anything. I just... Back to what I just said to the gentleman over there. I could have let that get me get stuck. And I just said, no. I said, I know there's something for me in this industry. I know that I can have some kind of impact. I know that I can find my path. And that's going to require me to work really hard, be really good at building relationships with people, and hopefully have a bit of luck and support. And then you never know what can happen. So I advise anyone raising any young person today, expose them to everything. Expose them to everything so they can discover their talents and discover what they love. That is the biggest gift you can give them because that's the hardest thing to find in life is to know what you really love. And if you can find that and then you can align your, your kind of passion with your purpose and your career... I'm telling you, magical things can happen. It happened to me. It happened to me. 
Thank you. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, great questions. Uh, I want to thank Imran uh, for the great inspirational talk. And enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, thank everybody. You. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. <coughs> Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.